Well, if you can open your Bibles to Psalm 37, as I preach and, and sweat my way through this, these verses, you can open your Bibles to uh, chapter 37, and, and we'll be looking at the, the last uh, 10 verses, verses 30 through 40. Let me read the whole, the whole psalm, psalm for you this morning. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in Him and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the, of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing for evil doers will be cut off but those who hope for Yahweh they will inherit the land yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more you will look carefully at his place and he will not be there but the lowly will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace the wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth the Lord laughs at him and he sees for he sees that his day is coming the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Yahweh knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil and the and in the days of famine they will be satisfied, but the wicked will perish. And the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish in smoke, they, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh, and he, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand. I was young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his seed is a blessing. Depart from evil and do good so you will dwell forever. For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake his holy ones. They are kept forever, but the seed of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yahweh will not forsake him in his hand. He will not condemn him when he is judged. Hope for Yahweh and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and behold, he was no more. I sought for him, but he, he, he could not be found. 
Observe the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in time of distress. Yahweh helps them and protects them. He protects them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Years ago, I had a friend who was insane. He had invested in a particular stock that had performed unusually well, and, and from the moment going, that moment going forward, he began to spiral downward into an oblivion of paranoia. He began thinking that the government had taken note of this investment transaction, and he was certain that the government had launched an investigation of himself. He began to create this imaginary world where agents were always following him. Imaginary agents would do this, and then this was the reason something else happened, and it all kind of made sense in a, in a, in a strange way. He was, he was so intelligent, he was able to make it make sense. And so we would be standing in line at, at Subway, and he would turn to me and he said, hey, 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 you see that guy right behind us? I would turn around, a normal guy, I think he's following me. I would try to assure him that he wasn't, but it was to no avail. One Friday night during a Bible study, he, would, he called me over and he, and he whispered in my ear and he said, hey, hey, you know, you know that guy over there? And I said, yeah, that's Joe. He's like, do you know him pretty well? He said, yes. He was asking me questions, and he's really suspicious. And I, would, and I would turn to him, and I would try to say to him, I would say, he's not an agent. He works in IT. I've known him for years. After a few months of trying to reason with my friend, after going to the psalms about worry and fear. One night, I, 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 in kind of this measured frustration, I said, it's like, here is the world of reality, and then there's this world that you're stuck in, that you're trapped in. It's, it's like this, this is a prison that you, you can't escape from. And I'm trying to get you to, to, to leave that world and join the rest, of the, the rest of us. To join the world of reality. And he looked at me and he said, I know. But before you feel sorry for him, we need to consider whether we need to feel sorry for ourselves first. Sure, the world you live in, interpreted, interpreted by your mind and thoughts, an overall, overall worldview may not be to the degree of absurdity my friend's world was, but is the reality you live in God's reality? Is your world the real world according to God's understanding of the world? Or is it a world that you have created just like my friend? Maybe not a, maybe not a dark spy movie kind of world, but a world uh, according to 
to the dictates of the values of, of secularism, a, a reality according to the values of an unbelieving, God-rejecting society. So far, David in Psalm 37 has taught us three ways to live a, an abundant life. The first way was given in verses 1 through 11. Be faithful. Be faithful by not worrying about your enemies. God will judge them. Be faithful to God in the little things and simple acts of faithfulness to God and to others. Be, be faithful to God by waiting for God to rescue you from evil. But the only way you're going to be faithful is if you're living in a world where God is sovereign over all evil. The only way you're going to be faithful is if you're living in a, in a world where God has the power to determine the end of history. Is that the world you live in? Is that your reality? The second way to live a, an abundant life was found in verses 12 through 20, establish an eternal perspective. Uh, David was telling us that we need to stop striving after the temporary pleasures of, this, this, of our society, that this world that is passing away, and, and instead live for eternal gain. Live to please God, knowing that he has eternal rewards waiting for the faithful. A kingdom is coming for you. And so are you living in the light of that future? A new heavens, a new earth is on its way. Is this how you see the end of your life? Is this how you see the end of, of history for all mankind? If not, I'm afraid you may be more like my friend than you think. That's you. Don't feel sorry for him. Feel sorry for yourself. How do you live an abundant life? David said thirdly in verses 21 through 29, stand on God's faithfulness. In every detail of your life, in the small things, in the big things, God is always faithful to his people. Every promise he has made, God will fulfill literally exactly the way he has spoken in Scripture. He never comes up short. He never makes excuses. And in the kingdom, when Israel receives their land, God promised that God promised to Abraham, we will celebrate and sing of God's faithfulness for a thousand years. And in the meantime, God will finish the growth he began in you when you first believed. He will finish what he started because he's faithful. Does God's faithful, faithfulness give you peace? Does God's faithfulness give you strength? If not, then you have to ask yourself, Whose world am I living in? Like, have you created a reality that isn't true, that isn't the world that God created and is sustained presently by the word of his power? And finally, David gives us the fourth and final way to live an abundant life, and it's this. Think about God's word. This final way of living is the linchpin of all the ways to live according to Psalm 37, because you will never be faithful. You will never establish an eternal mindset. You will never stand on the faithfulness of God unless you're constantly thinking about God's word. The best way to live, according to Psalm 37, presupposes that you are thinking often about the content of Scripture. Thinking about, pondering the scripture will help you be faithful. It will help you establish an eternal mindset. It, it, will, it will provide the worldview that you need fully constructed before you can do all these things. You have to believe 
the world is the way God says it is in Scripture before you'll ever be faithful, before you'll ever have an eternal perspective, and before you'll ever be confident in the faithfulness of God. In the last section of Psalm 37, David ties the knot with respect to the subject matter he's been dealing with. He's at the end of his life, and he's considering what makes makes up the best kind of life, and he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us that formula. Yes, all of what he said about living a, a, a full and rich life is true, but the linchpin, the linchpin of it all is thinking about God's Word. In verses 30 through 40, David writes about the foundation of godliness, the wellspring of righteousness, and that is the Word of God considered, meditate, meditated upon, and thought about. Point number one, where does righteousness come from? Where does godliness come from? Verses 30 and 31. David tells us in these first two verses. But let, let's look at verse 30 before we get the answer. David says in verse 30, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. Throughout the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament, that word, the, that term righteous, is, is used as a synonym for God's people. God's people must be marked first and foremost by righteousness. In Psalm 37, if you go back to verse 1, the righteous are, con are contrasted with doers of righteousness. They are contrasted with evildoers. Doers, evildoers, and doers of righteousness versus doers of good and doers of, of, of godliness and doers of righteousness. Uh, these evildoers, verse 2, will, will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb in the hot summer. On the other hand, verse 3, the, the righteous, they trust in Yahweh and they are doers of good. Uh, the, the righteous, they cultivate faithfulness like farmers in, in, in a land cultivating crops. Verses 5 and 6, God says, He will bring forth our righteousness as the sun, as the light, as the noonday. In verse 7, the righteous, they, they rest in Yahweh. They're still in Him. They wait patiently for, for His redemption and His justice and his deliverance verse 11 the 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 righteous are lowly they're they're meek verse 16 the righteous are content they're content with the little they have because they have a big god verse 21 the righteous are gracious and they give and now in verse 30 david says the righteous man utters wisdom his tongue speaks justice. A man's tongue is the best index of his character because the mouth always betrays the heart. The, the mouth reveals the heart. And the mark of a believer is, is our, our words and speech that is edifying and truthful and sound. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. Wisdom means living a life that is honoring to God. Uh, his tongue speaks justice, verse 30. Justice refers to um, uh, 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 decisions, the, the right decisions 
that, that, that honor the Lord. And that's what the speech of the righteous help others do. Our words help others live a life pleasing to God. Our speech give people the biblical data to make right decisions. But where does all this righteousness come from? What is the wellspring of an individual's godliness? What is the source? Verse 31, David tells us, the law of his God is in his heart. The law of his God is in his heart. In verse 30, it is actually implied that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom because the wisdom of God's word is being meditated upon day and night. The Hebrew word behind uh, the word utters in verse 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, the, the Hebrew word there can also be translated meditate. David used the same word back in Psalm 1 when he wrote, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. In other words, David says here, do you want to know how to be faithful? Do you want to establish a, an, an eternal mindset? Do you want to forever stand on God's faithfulness? Then you guys, go back to Psalm 1 and review. In that light, in light of David's intention, go to turn with me back to Psalm 1 to be reminded of what David said there. By the way, in case you didn't know, Psalm 1 is the, is the entry point. It's the door. If you were, con con if you were to consider the, the Psalms as a house, Psalm 1 is the door. If you were, consider if you were to think think of the entire book of Psalms as a castle, then Psalm 1 is the gate. It's the guard. In other words, if you want to enter this, the castle of the Psalms, if you want to enter the, the, the mansion, this great house, this great estate of the book of the Psalms, you must first enter by Psalm 1. You must, you must first receive and accept and be the man described in Psalm 1 and then you can be transformed by the rest of the Psalter. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Before you can have God's word in your heart you need to separate yourself from wicked people first. You must separate from their lifestyles before you can have the law of God living in your heart, remaking you, reforming you, turning you into a new person. First, you need to separate yourself from evil, wicked, worldly people. That is the precondition. Verse 2. Who is the man or woman of Psalm 1? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates. That's the same word we saw in verse 30, when David said the righteous utters wisdom. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be... Oh, verse 2. So verse 2, before we get to verse 3, verse 2 is saying, uh, second, uh, first you separate from yourself from the wicked, and, and number two, you think about God's word all the time. Day and night. 
and you're meditating on it day and night because the law of Yahweh is your delight. It's what you love. You love the Bible so much, you think about it day and night, every hour. When I was dating Tina before we got married, I thought about her a lot, day and night. She was my delight. And in, the, in a greater way, if you love God's word, you'll be thinking about God's word all the time. And, 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 and David says, let the frequency of thinking about God's word transform you. Get the word inside of you and let it make this indelible, permanent mark within inside of yourself. And then when you do that, this is what happens, verse 3. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Thinking about God's word daily and every hour and and weekly and monthly and, and year after year, it yields, it produces the most abundant kind of life. But what does that look like practically? How do you get the Word of God in your heart to the degree that it transforms your life? How do you get the Word of God within yourself to the degree it transforms your life? Well, number one, you start by reading God's Word. And and this is how you read a book, in case you didn't know. You read it from the beginning to the end. If you've been a believer more than a few years, it goes without saying that you should have by now read through the Bible from cover to cover at least one time. My first pastor, whenever he would meet you, within 10 minutes, he would ask you, have you ever read the Bible cover to cover? Have you ever read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? And if you said no, he would say, well, you need to do it. And once you read through the Bible from cover to cover the first time, now you do it a second time. And then after the second time, you should make it your goal to read through the Bible in one year, every year, for many years. That's not very hard to do. If you read four chapters a day, which takes no more than about 30 minutes, you can finish the entire Bible in a year. Fine. If you want to do two, two chapters, it'll take you two years. Fine. If you want to do one chapter, it'll take you four years. But in four years, you better have read your Bible from cover to cover. See, the worst way to read the Bible is like, is like spinning a, ro- a roulette table in Vegas where you just kind of, you know, randomly open the Bible. Okay, God, what is your will for me today? Shh. You know? Lord, what do, what do you want me to do today? Shh. John MacArthur tells the joke where, you know, a person did that and he, he, open, he opened the Bible and, and, he, and the first place his eyes landed was, and Judas hanged himself. They said, okay, and then he opened the Bible his, uh, a second time and then he, and he read, now you do likewise. <laughs> That's not how the Bible works. It, it is... 
it is not a slot machine where you win every time you pull the lever. Sometimes you lose. The Bible is a story. The Bible is a true story. It is a history. It, is, it contains a plan of salvation that has a beginning, middle, and end. How do you get the law of God in your heart to the degree it transforms your life? You've got to read it consistently from the beginning to the end. Number two, you need to understand what you're reading. You need to understand what you are reading. What is the Bible anyways? What is the Bible? What is the Scripture? Is it the pages that the ink is written on? No. Is it the cover? No. Is it the verses, that the black print that are on the pages? Is that the Bible? No. It's, it's none of those things. What is the Bible? Listen very carefully. The Word of God is the meaning of the Word of God. The Word of God is the meaning of the Word of God. Scripture is the meaning of Scripture rightly interpreted. And to help you understand that idea, let's say you read out loud Genesis 1-1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in your mind as you read that, this is what you understood the words to mean. Uh, in the beginning means the middle. Uh, God means uh, Buddha. Uh, created means a big bang. Uh, heavens and earth mean the lake down the street. Did you read the Bible? If, if that's how you understood it, you did not read the scriptures. If I taught that, if I taught Genesis 1 that, 1, 1 that way, did I teach God's word? I did not teach God's word. Because that's not the meaning of Genesis 1, 1. The cover of the Bible, the pages of the Bible, the print on the Bible, all these things in of themselves are not Scripture. I can throw this book against the wall and it would mean nothing because there's nothing sacred about this actual text. What is sacred is the meaning of Scripture, rightly interpreted, rightly defined. That is what is holy. That is what is sacred. That means if you don't understand what you're reading, you're not reading the Word of God. There's no power in that. You will not change at all if you do not accurately understand what this text is saying. It is not like a, a rabbit's foot. It's not, it's not a lucky charm where you read it mindlessly and, and think some blessing will come from that. So what will help you understand Scripture? A lot of things, a lot of things, but let me just start with the most basic thing. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. A study Bible. That's a good place to begin. Any, any, any study Bible will do. And the most important part of a study Bible are not the notes that accompany the verses. The most important part of a study Bible are the introductions that begin each book of the Bible. The introduction will give you a summary of the book, information about the author, the historical context, major themes, difficult interpretations, the outline. That's where the money is. When, when, I, when the Lord saved me when I was 26, I was on fire for God. 
I mean, I was in church 24-7, seven days a week. I, I would read this thing all the time, cover to cover. And after about two years, you know what? I didn't understand anything. I, I, it was like, what is this book about? Until I then finally bought a study Bible. I read the summaries, read the outlines, read the historical context, information about the author, the purpose, interpretive difficulties. And when, when that study Bible gave me a skeleton to put the meat on, then the Bible just opened up for me. And if you're having trouble, just, I don't, I don't get this. What is this saying? I kind of get it. It's just, there's so much stuff and so many words and so many people and names. What are these names? These names are weird. Get a study Bible. That's where you start. And I, I really believe it's almost impossible to understand the Bible unless you start there. The only alternative is to wait for your pastor to get to the book, to explain the book. But if you do that, you'll wait an entire lifetime before you understand the entire Bible. How do you get the Word of God in your heart to the degree it transforms you? Well, you need to read it. Then you need to understand it accurately. And then once you do that, it needs to be a constant practice. That reading and understanding Scripture must be a daily exercise. That every believer's ambition in life should be that the one subject that, I, that I'm going to be an expert in is Scripture. Many of you here, you're experts in your field of occupation. If I ask you about your job, Man, you can, just, you can just go for an hour or two or three hours. You can never stop. And I have no idea what you're saying. And the sad thing is many, many believers we know our, the, our, our occupation well. We know what we studied in college. But our understanding of Scripture is almost, almost nothing. And so as much as you know, as much as you understand about your your, your study, your, your expertise in your career, know the Scripture more. And that takes hard work. This involves regular personal, personal study of Scripture. This involves memorizing the Bible, memorizing verses, memorizing large passages, memorizing entire Psalms, Psalm 23, Psalm 27. This involves hearing the Scripture taught and preached faithfully every Sunday. And that's really the capstone. That's really the, the, the God has so designed the church and our spiritual growth uh, to, to make it where uh, pastors and teachers are these gifts given to the church to really solidify your, your, your understanding of Scripture. For example, I, I, recently I've been uh, uh, doing a personal study of Zechariah I, I, so I began with reading the book. It's, it's, not a, it's not a big book. It's 12 chapters. It's a short book. I, I began uh, reading uh, Zechariah over and over. I read it like 10, 15 times. I went to my MacArthur Study Bible, read the introduction, read it again, read all the notes. I went to my Alan Moeller Study Bible, read the introduction, read the notes. And after about three months, I'm like, hmm, what, what is Zechariah about? That's, it's a tough book. But I had a plan, too. I had a stage two of my plan. I went to a sermon series done by a group of pastors at my old church. 
and I'm in the uh, sixth or seventh vision, and it, 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 just, it just really opened up. Now it sticks. Now it's sticking in my mind. I know the, 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 the most important two visions. I know that the, the, it's a chiasm. I understand the, the, the details of all these, these weird esoteric symbols and those visions. And once you've read the Word, once you've understood the Word, once you've made it a daily exercise, once you've made it a life ambition, then slowly you begin to change. The reality of the world you built in your mind when you didn't know Christ now begins to, to, to come apart a brick by brick, and it begins to be replaced with a biblical worldview. And it's this biblical worldview that is forming in your mind and in your heart by Scripture that, that, it, that provides the context for living out the principles and commands of Scripture. Only when you start living in God's world because you're seeing the world through God's eyes will it make any sense to be faithful to God. If you're living in God's reality, then it's perfectly logical to establish an eternal mindset. You won't be able to stand on God's faithfulness unless you're reading about his faithful character in Scripture on a regular basis. So you read the Word, you understand the Word, you keep the Word on your mind and in your heart uh, daily, and, and now you trust the Word, you, living in your heart, you're obeying the Word that's living inside of your soul. And David says next in Psalm uh, 37, 31, the law of God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. You will not trip over sin and transgression. There are times when I don't read Scripture for a while. There are times when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm studying the Scripture like 50 hours, 60 hours a week, right? So on vacation, sometimes I'm like, I need a break. And you know what happens? I always slip. I always trip. I trip over, over my sin. And then I'm like, oh no, I just sinned. Consequences. Consequences. David says, what he means when he says you do not slip, he doesn't mean that your life will get easier. In fact, living a biblical life, speaking biblical truth, because the Bible is in your heart, in your heart brings with it persecution. And this leads us to point number two. Point number two. Hope you're surviving over there in the heat. The good thing about it is, for me, is that I don't see a clock, so I can just preach the rest of the afternoon. This is, this is great. Point number two, thinking about God's word brings with it persecution, verses 32 to 34. As you drink God's word regularly, as you eat, and, as you eat food and drink liquids every day, God transforms your mind. And, and once he begins to transform your mind, you, you will not be able to not speak the truth in an evil world. As Jesus said, uh, from out of the heart the mouth speaks. So if within your heart uh, resides the word of God richly in, a, in, a, in an overflowing way, th that it will inevitably come out through your, through your words, through your conversations, uh, through your statements, 
through your mouth. And your words will offend an unbelieving world. It will cut to their heart. It will convict and ignite a furious response. And David says in verse 32 that when the mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and, and when he speaks justice in verse 30, as a result of the law of God in his heart in verse 31, the wicked will, in verse 32, spy upon the righteous and seek to put you to death. So this isn't a read the Bible sermon and you'll live a great life. This is a read your Bible sermon and people will kill you after you do it. That's what David is saying. And the word spies in verse 32, it means watch closely. The church stands out in America because of what we say, right? We get attacked because of the words that we speak. You see, Jesus, he, he wasn't killed because he was a good man minding his own business. The, the Pharisees killed Jesus for his words. They killed Jesus for what he said. Yes, his sinless life validated, validated the truth of his words, but it was Jesus' words that directly stirred up this murderous anger against him. So if, if that was our Lord's outcome. If our Lord was crucified for His words, and now His words are our words, we must not look for favor when our Master found only hatred and death. And that's how the world works under the power of Satan. Political victory and legislative power doesn't change the reality of verse 32. Because God's people will always be the minority. We will always be the remnant in every society throughout time, throughout land and culture. We will never be beat unbelievers at their own game because we will always be simply outnumbered. David was a great king with a massive army, but relative to the entire world, Israel was outnumbered by enemy nations. David says, my army is not going to help you. My soldiers aren't going to help me. But God will not abandon us, verse 33. Yet Yahweh will not forsake him in his hand. He will not condemn him when he is judged. By the way, often... Hostility toward God's people comes from the government. Satan often works through the government to attack God's people. This is a time-tested strategy employed for the last 2,000 years, and that makes sense because it is the government who has all the power. They're the only people who can actually kill us. They're the only institution that actually has the authority to kill you. And so when the Jews decided to kill Jesus, they needed the permission of Pilate and his authority. Paul was executed by the Roman Empire. 
as we're learning in church history, the early church is being persecuted by the Roman government and all the different Caesars that come to power. And so the wicked who seek to put us to death are often our own government leaders. And sometimes in this life we see the providence, over, uh, the providence of God overturn the wicked power of government, uh, 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 corrupt a bureaucracy and authority. Uh, the movie Essential Church, if you haven't seen that, is a story of, of how God's sovereignty and providence kind of overcame this abusive power. Some of, some of the time, yes, our, our redemption happens in our lifetime, but for the, most, for, for, the most, for the most part, that redemption comes in the future. David encourage us, encourages us to place our ultimate hope of vindication in the future. He says, put your hope in the future. Look at verse 34. Hope for Yahweh and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Throughout Psalm 37, David's hope is not in his, in his kingship, not in his military uh, genius, it's not in his army. David's hope is in this future messianic kingdom where Christ reigns. And that means you may be condemned in human courts today, but you will be vindicated when God exalts you in the millennial kingdom. And it will be on that day you will see with your own eyes justice recompensed on your behalf. Look what it says again at the end of verse 34. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. You will see it. We will be first-hand witnesses when all our enemies are judged at the end of time. The whole world will witness the harlot of Babylon burned with fire according to the book of Revelation. According to the book of Revelation, we will all watch the Lord Jesus on a white horse decimate all of our enemies while we enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 20, John records Satan's final defeat, and he records a public defeat. John writes in Revelation 20 that as, as Satan gathers the nations against Jerusalem with uh, Agog and Magog, according to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38, as they surround the saints in Jerusalem, Revelation 20, verse 9 says, The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And David said it first in verse 34, When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. There will be justice served on your behalf. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Time shall reverse the verdict of haste, or else eternity shall clear away the condemnation of time. And this is our hope, David says, verse 34. That's your hope. Final redemption. And in light of that hope, keep his way. Be obedient to his word. As the law of God is in your heart, Keep his way. Your steps will not slip. Well, what about the man who does not think about God's word? He's described in verses 35 and 36. 
And the man who doesn't keep God's word, the man who doesn't think about God's word, he's compared with the righteous man in verses 37 and 38. And so point number three, two different men and two different outcomes. Two different men and two different outcomes. David contrasts the man who does not think about God's word in verses 35 and 36 with the man or woman who does think about God's word in verses 37 and 38. Look what he says in verse 35. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. A luxuriant tree means a healthy tree. The word luxuriant means literally the word green, the color green. And so you have this picture of a healthy tree in its native soil, in its natural habitat, in perfect growing conditions. And this imagery of this fruitful tree is meant to remind you of what other tree? The tree in Psalm 1. The tree of Psalm 1 representing the man who meditates on the word of God day and night will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers. And so David makes this direct comparison of this apparent fruitful tree that represents a wicked man with the, with the godly man who meditates on the word of God in Psalm 1 in that tree. And this is David's point, that sometimes you can find unbelievers whose lives appear to be fruitful and successful. Their tree looks like your tree. Oh, she, 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 uh, she looks comfortable. She doesn't have a care in the world. It seems like this, the neighbor across the street has everything going for her. There's a, she has a big house, a green lawn in the front kids playing on the, uh, the large playground, dad's barbecuing, and in the front you have this, this, this nice rainbow flag flowing high and proud. And, but you know that your neighbor has never cracked open a Bible in her life. And every time you go to church on Sunday and you're broken down car, she gives you the evil eye. You're the neighbor across the street. Your house is the smallest house in the block. It's the only house that hasn't been renovated. Your lawn is full of brown patches and dandelions. And then you go to church every Sunday listening to this guy preach a series about how to live an abundant life from Psalm 37. And you're wondering why. Why does, why does my life seem so fruitless compared to your neighbor across the street? David says, yes, I grant, that's what you're seeing. Yes, your neighbor seems like a flourishing tree, like a, like a healthy tree, but you just wait a little bit longer, and you'll see this in verse 36. Then he passed away, and behold, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. When he died, when, when she passed away, they left no fruit. There was no fruit. You, you couldn't find the permanent, enduring results of their life. When they left the earth, 
the effects of their life it couldn't be found. It, it's as if they never lived. It's as if they never existed. They were here today and gone tomorrow. Look at verse 10. In a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place, and he will not be there. You'll go back to your neighbor's house years later, and you'll ask your neighbors about that person, and they'll say, we don't know who that is. In other words, the grandeur of the life of the ungodly is short-lived. He's the king of the forest one day, but on the next day, all the timber is carried away. Even the very root is torn from the ground. I don't, I don't mean to be political or take a cheap shot, but it's, this is what I thought of when I was studying verse 35 and 36, that, that you can even become the very president of the United States and have a cocaine addict for a son, a granddaughter you don't even acknowledge the existence of. You see, unbelievers know no matter how rich and powerful, they do not leave God glorifying legacies. In eternity future, you and I, we will look back 10 million years on our lives and we will look at our faithfulness here on earth. We will see the many sacrifices we made. made. We will consider all the suffering we endured for the glory of God and we will shout hallelujah. There will be no regrets just pure thankfulness, praise, and worship for God's grace. But David says here, you don't even have to wait that long. Just wait a generation or two or three, and the fruit of those who do not meditate upon the word of God day and night, you won't see it, you won't find it, you won't taste it. But verse 37, but, but observe the blameless man. And behold, the upright. Now in verse 37, David defines what authentic fruitfulness looks like. David shows us a picture. This is a, this is a real fruitful tree. This is, a, this is a, a genuine, abundant life. And it isn't a luxurious life. It isn't a life of wealth and comfort. Know when you're faithful to God, when you're eternally minded, when you're standing on God's faithfulness, when you're thinking about God's word, you're going to influence people. Verse 37. For the man of peace will have a posterity. The blameless man, the righteous man, the upright man, the one who thinks about God's word day and night, uh, he will leave a legacy. You will leave a legacy. Godly men and women have a edifying, sanctifying influence on other people. You introduce people to Christ. You help others become like Christ. You encourage people to remain steadfast. You gently point out the sin in the lives of your brothers and sisters. You bear their burdens. This is the true fruit of a man or woman who thinks about God's word all the time. And this kind of uh, impact is contagious. It affects others generationally. That is authentic legacy. John MacArthur, he's the grandson of a pastor. Can you imagine how proud John's grandfather is in heaven? 
even in heaven, his impact is making itself felt on earth today. That's true fruit. You see, discipling somebody in your family or outside your family makes an eternal difference for hundreds and hundreds of years in this world. Even though you're dead, your life still speaks. But for unbelievers, look at verse 38. Transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. When you're wicked, usually your kids are more wicked than you. When you're open and progressive, your kids are ten times more open and progressive. Each generation gets worse. That's what he says. The posterity of the wicked, they'll be cut off. If God cuts you off, he's going to cut off your, your children as well. There is no fruit that falls to the ground and become more trees for the wicked. Their tree is chopped up and used for firewood. And now David ends Psalm 37, making sure we're clear about where a full and abundant life comes from. Ultimately, in verses 39 and 40, point number four, an abundant life comes from Yahweh. It comes from the Lord. It comes from God. 39 verse 40. Remember how Psalm 37 began? Look at Psalm 37, 1 and 2. David began this psalm. He says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious of doers of unrighteousness. Don't be afraid of them. And now, now Psalm 37 ends with the reason why. 39, verse 39 says, The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in time of distress. Yahweh helps them and protects them. He protects them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Note the words in verse 39, from Yahweh. Note the words at the end of verse 40, in Him. Our salvation is from Yahweh. Our salvation is in Him. Our strength is from Yahweh. Our our strength is in Him in time of distress. Our protection, our help is from Yahweh. It is in Him. Our salvation is from Him and is in Him. See, the only thing that you are responsible for is found at the end of verse 40 taking refuge in Him. God does all the work. He makes our way. He bears fruit in our lives. He watches over us. He gives us peace. We just need to take refuge in Him and live in His world and live in His reality. And we operate out of the worldview that Scripture gives, a worldview we cannot have unless we think about God's Word all the time. Brothers and sisters, there are, there are many ways to live your life. You can go to the bookstore and the shelves are filled with countless self-help books. 
Motivational speaking is a very large and lucrative industry. But most of those ways of living they promote, it presumes a worldview. It presumes a world where, where God is, is not in control. It presupposes a reality where the cross is not the most important event of history. Scripture doesn't just tell you how to live. Scripture gives you a world to live in. It gives you an entire different world of view, a radically unique perspective about how history, about how science and morality work, presuppositions that are diametrically opposed to how you understood life before you met Christ. And we gain this worldview through thinking about God's Word day and night. This is the linchpin of living a full and abundant life. Is that the world you live in? Do you live in God's world? Do you live knowing that He's sovereign, that He's the King? that he is the rewarder at the end. If not, don't feel sorry for my friend. Feel sorry for yourself. Be faithful. Establish an eternal mindset. Stand on God's faithfulness. And most importantly, think about God's word. According to David in Psalm 37, this is the best way to live.